Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5. I want to continue on our study that we've been speaking on, on spiritual warfare. And it, of course, is uh, definitive. We wrestle not with flesh and blood. We're reminded in Ephesians chapter 6, but principalities, spiritual wickedness in high places. And you and I must, as dear children of God, as we walk circumspect and walk holy and walk in the day and not in the night and reprove those things that are evil, we're called to walk in a way and in such a way that there is going to be conflict with the culture and there is going to be conflict with the age. And ultimately, there is just the desire of Satan, as is said throughout the Scripture, to sift us as wheat as he did to Peter. Uh, there in this particular passage that we're looking at here in 1 John chapter, or 1 Peter rather, chapter 5, he speaks about your adversary the devil, uh, walketh about, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And that word devour has the idea to swallow whole. Uh, the urgency by which he would undermine a believer, uh, uh, the urgency by which he would seek to neutralize the impact of that believer is readily upon his heart and thought and mind. Uh, he cannot attack the individual in such a way that they lose their salvation, as we'll look at in just a moment. But he will seek to attack to make us an ineffective child of God. The battle is real. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we spoke on this topic and we looked at some of the areas by which spiritual warfare occurs. And I think it would do as well for me just to list some of these to put us in the mindset to know how we resist those attacks. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at this, that it's a personal attack sometimes in which Satan engages him. It's personal. And by that, I mean individual. I mentioned this one already, but we could look over in the gospel of, of uh, Matthew, believe it is, and chapter 22 and, he, and verse 54 and following. And, and uh, the Lord said unto Peter that Satan would desire to sift thee as wheat. Uh, and the thought there is the, uh, the spiritual battle in which Peter is that brought about that not once, but three times the denial of Christ. It was a personal attack upon him. The Apostle Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, in which, or uh, 2 Corinthians chapter number 12, rather, where he has a minister from Satan in the flesh. Uh, now, that does not mean that he had an individual which was demon-possessed. That's not what he's referencing. But rather, there was the personal attack upon him that caused him greatly to pray unto the Lord that God would remove it. But, of course, the Lord answered in the ending conclusion of chapter 12 and said, My grace is sufficient. But nevertheless, it's labeled in the scriptures as it was a spiritual warfare in his life against him directedly, Paul. And there were individuals that came into his life that no doubt uh, were used in demonic ways. I think of 2 Timothy chapter 4. He speaks of Alexander the coppersmith. And do you remember what he said? Who did me much evil. It's a personal attack that is used in this regard. Uh, not the least we could think over in the uh, book of Acts, particularly when he went to Thessalonica but, Thessalonica, but also when he went to Ephesus. And there the demonic activity specifically 
uh, as it related to Ephesus. Just such a godly city. The riots that occurred, times in which he is stoned, times in which he is persecuted. Uh, there are directing spiritual warfare that he was engaged in as he preached the gospel. Over in Revelation chapter 2, you have two churches, one Smyrna, one Thyatira, and both of which are talking about the spiritual uh, assault by demonic forces upon those two individual local assemblies of Thyatira and Smyrna. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse through 1 through 5, we find about uh, Christians, particularly one that would profess the name of Christ and the rebellion that had been espoused in their life. I would say while they made that individual choice to, to reject the commands of God, nevertheless, as it came to the, the church, Satan used that in a powerful way to bring division and ineffectiveness in the church at Corinth. Uh, the same it could be true of 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verses 18 through 20, deceiver and rebellion. And then it can also come in a very general battle a very general battle to individuals. And I speak of 1 John chapter 2 where he talks about all that is in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, not of the Father, but of the world. The world pass away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And there is a constant bombardment uh, to the, each believer individually as you look at the scope of this world system. This world system has not, nor will it ever be in its current state, an ally to Bible-believing Christianity, it's under an assault. That is spiritual warfare. Not only will he, that is the evil one, bring about personal attacks, but he'll even attack uh, the realm of marriage. We read about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Beyond that, we find out that even a local assembly, as has already been mentioned with Smyrna and Thyatira, can be under attack. Uh, particularly those engaged in the pulpit ministry and leadership is mentioned. I think in 1 Timothy chapter 3 where speaking of a novice, uh, he commands that the pastor be not a novice, lest he be lifted up in pride and the admonition then following how Satan will use that ultimately to his demise and those that hear him. So there is nothing off limits as it pertains to spiritual warfare. But there is one thing that I want to convey to you tonight quickly before we get into the message. Though there are many battle areas, one thing rests sure, and that is the salvation of a child of God. While we battle and battle not against flesh and blood, while we wrestle with these things that would seek to destroy us, our salvation is never, if you're taking notes, you're writing your Bible, I have it in my notes, all caps, never in Jeopardy. Let me give you just a few verses. This isn't the crux of the message, but I feel as you're talking about spiritual warfare, you're talking about the assault of one that would devour you, gnash his teeth upon you, the destruction that comes, the division that can, can follow suit. You could look at that and say, man, I'm, I'm just, I'm hopeless. Maybe he can rend me uh, from my place as a, a child of God. I'm going to give you a couple of verses to think about along that line. I think of John chapter 6. John chapter 6 and verse 39. And this is the Father's will, which hath sent me, the Lord speaking, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose, do you remember the next word? Nothing. But should raise it up again at the last day. I think of Romans chapter 8. The Apostle Paul writing under inspiration Writing in a chapter, as we've studied on Thursday nights, deals with the believer and the Holy Spirit of God. In Romans chapter 8, the last couple of verses of that chapter, he says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, 
nor angels, nor principalities, nor power. That's a lot of things to keep in mind. Reflect on that a moment. I'm persuaded to either death. Paul's saying, if I'm threatened with death, and he was, he was stoned in the gates of Lystra. He was near death as he's bobbing a night and day in the deep on a couple of different occasions. As he was bitten, I think it's Acts chapter 25 perhaps, 26 maybe, as he's bitten by a venomous snake on the coast of a barbarous island, he is next and near to death at many calls. He said, but I'm persuaded this, that death will not separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He said, nor life. You know, there's a lot of joy that occurs. This is one great thing I enjoy about this year. I, I like, and I'm talking not in a spiritual sense, but I like the thought that when you go into stores, if people even still do that, I don't know if people still go into stores this time of year or not. If they go out into stores and people are, the idea is people are supposed to have a little bit of a merry spirit about them. That can be a joyous thing to consider. I know that that's sometimes wishful thinking. But sometimes to look at the den of life, all of its troubles and difficulty and its heartache. Paul experienced all that and he said, I'm, I'm going to tell you the worst day of your life cannot separate you from the love of God. Now, I don't know what the worst day of your life is. And perhaps, sadly, we might think we know what the worst day of our life is. And yet we hope and pray that we live many more years down the road, only to realize that down the road of peace, there might be a day that is the day of all days, far greater than the day that we for two thought was the worst day of our life. He said, nor angels. I might would include in that spiritual beings, whether fallen or righteous, cannot separate me from the love of God. May I say something to you in Galatians chapter 1? Paul, in speaking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, said that if an angel of heaven was to appear and preach a different gospel other than what you have in the gospel, let him be anathema. That's pretty strong language that is given there. No angelic being can separate me from the power of Jesus Christ's ability to preserve me into the day of Jesus Christ. He speaks of principalities and powers. They're close in their theory and their thought there, principalities and powers. But I might would just tell you this. There's no extra gover extraterrestrial governmental force or no terrestrial governmental force that will be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ. What are you talking about? There's no alien force. I don't have to worry about invaders from Mars coming and ripping me out of God's hands. I don't have to worry about invaders from a foreign world uh, in a spiritual way ripping me out of the Father's hand. I do not have to worry about the uh, conclave of governments that pursue unto the day of final judgment ever removing me from the presence of God. I'm safe and secure. And so then he's going to transition not only from all these things that I can contrive with my imagination, but he goes a step further. He says, nor things present right now. And I particularly am fond of the next expression, nor things to come. What's going to happen tomorrow? Some folks bite their nails till there's nothing left, worried about what's going to happen tomorrow. Now, friend, I might have things that I am concerned of about tomorrow, but I'll tell you this, nothing's going to happen tomorrow, next week, next year, five years, 10 years, 100 years, 150 years, or as many numbers as my mind on the cuff can display that will ever separate me from the love of God. But yet he continues. Nor height, nor depth, 
And just in case you missed anything, nor any other creature. And that includes everything in the water and in the sky. Everything that could ever be invented, contrived, everything that has ever been created cannot jeopardize my salvation. But let me give you one more verse. It's one that I think of readily. Philippians 1 and 6. Being confident. There are so few things that you can truly be confident about. I cannot be confident in the weather. I truly cannot. I love it when they put those percentages there as a 50 or 60. There's no confidence in weather. I cannot have confidence in Wall Street. I can't even really have confidence in my flesh, can I? For in the seventh chapter of Romans, the only thing I can be arresting assured of in regard to my flesh, I can be confident of its sinful nature. I can't be confident in the politics of the day. I can't be confident in the society of the day. But there's one thing I can be confident in, this very thing, that he, that is Jesus Christ, which has begun a good work in you, shall what? Perform it into the day of Jesus Christ. That's the day of your glorification. Be that by the undertaker or the uppertaker. In that moment whereby your soul and spirit is separated from your body. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And in that very moment, I will know with grand assurance the confidence that I have always espoused because of biblical truth. My salvation has never been in jeopardy. You know, one of the great reliefs of my mind early in my Christian life was to realize that it's not my job to keep my salvation. Now, I, I know you theologians, you've been around and that was a marvelous light bulb moment for me to know that it's him that does all the keeping. It's him I speak of God. I speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. I speak about the Holy Spirit of God. It is him that does all the keeping. He preserves us. And I'm thankful for that. What if I were to wilt under the awesome pressure of persecution? Other believers have done it before. What if I was to wilt? Do I lose my salvation? No. Why? 2 Timothy chapter number 2. If we deny him, he cannot deny himself. He is faithful. Well, what if I was to become so discouraged over the affairs of this life that in great discomfort of soul and agony of hearts, I threw up my hands in the air and say, I'm finished. And I'm going to run for the hills of Montana as quickly as I can to run away from the... Have I lost my salvation? What if I have no ability in my flesh? What if, as Ecclesiastes describes in the 11th, 12th, what if my eyes become dim and my hands become feeble and I can no longer minister for the Holy Ghost, minister through the Holy Ghost for the power of God? What if I can never do that? Have I lost my salvation? No. That's why Paul said being confident. And that's in particularly where he says in Romans chapter 8, I am persuaded that persuasion is not something that's done just through a logical debate type action. 
It's done through revealed truth. And in Romans chapter 8, chapter 14 and 15 and 16, he talks about our spirit and the spirit of God that indwells us and sanctifies us and sets us apart and, and, and confirms in us that we are the sons of God. All of this bringing together in grand conclusion, he is keeping his promises of salvation to me. So we speak of spiritual warfare. Let us not for a moment consider that this is in some way a jeopardy of our salvation. When I by faith have believed and confessed him as Savior, I, he is stuck with me for eternity. I am his and he is mine. But nonetheless... Satan will do anything to make the dear child of God have faith that is shaken and beliefs that are weak and actions that are ineffective, are ineffective in their following of Christ. Notice here well in the text, there's a number of things that I'd like to relate to you tonight. Time, I just really want to focus on three things. We may revisit this chapter and I'll give you a couple more things. But, but the theme of 1 Peter chapter 5 has to deal with the mind of a Christian. He's bringing in conclusion, as Paul does in other places. He's bringing in chapter 5 sheer application of theology. The theology is the first four chapters. When you get really, though he does take a break in chapter 3 and chapter 4 a little bit, when you get to chapter 5, the main thrust of chapter 5 is not new theology. The main thrust of chapter 5 is application. Because of these things, thou should do this. By the way, you don't have Bible preaching if there is no application. That's in vogue today. To have systematic expositors of scriptures that teach the scripture and give no clues on how to apply it. That would be like me teaching you the values of numbers or you teaching your child as you school them in the coming weeks the value of numbers that one is this many and two is this many but making no application on combinations whatsoever. That would be like you teaching a child the sounds that a, e, a, e, a, uh, make but never allowing the application for blends. All they would know is the alphabet when they're 18 years old and still would not be able to put it together to read the language at all. Bible preaching always includes some form of application to our life. And that's what's occurring here in this fifth chapter. There's an application. And the theme of 1 Peter is suffering. It's mentioned approximately 16, 17 times in the entirety of the book. Let me just give you one illustration. In 1 Peter, when it's written, the time in which it's written correlates quite closely to the reign of Nero in Rome. And Nero basically rules much of the known world upon which many believers are scattered abroad in. And as a result of them being believers and holding to the way and not deifying Nero and not raising in submission to him, it reminds you a little bit of Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, but as a direct result, they're under an awesome empire-wide persecution. Now what are you going to do with all this persecution? And Peter here drives home the truth through inspiration in chapter 5. I have to think personally, I wonder if he did not consider uh, the 22nd chapter of Matthew, you know, he desires to sift thee as wheat. And realize at the moment that the Lord Jesus was going to begin that passion, 
starting with his prayer in John chapter 17 all the way to his inquisition and then his crucifixion and then the hanging on that cross for that terrible time and through his death and through his burial. All of this time, yes, it was during that time that the powers of evil was demonstrated effectively on all of those disciples. Fear reached deep into their heart. They wept. Mary Magdalene, what did she do? She went in great tears to the garden. Now it's easy to cast blame upon their weak faith, but so often you and I, when difficulties arise in this life, fail to realize that we could be at the very crux, the very point, sometimes the very pinnacle of spiritual warfare. And we'd say to ourselves, how should I respond? And this is what Peter's doing in the fifth chapter. And I would note in the fifth chapter, there's a number of ways that you could divide it. There's a number of things to look at, but the primary focus really is this, your mind. So much, I'm not talking about better thinking, better living. I'm not talking about the power of positive thinking. But there's a lot to do in a believer in how you process informational truth from the Word of God and how you have the discernment to apply it and how you make the decisions in life. All of that occurs in your mind and heart. And that's the directive to which Peter's going to mention. Let me give you these three words. We'll define them. I'll give you a series of verses and then we'll make some application here. Notice, if you will, in verse number 8. It's really verse 8. And verse 9, verse 8, here's the first of these two. Be sober. What's your next point? Be vigilant. Now move down to verse number 8. Whom resist steadfastly. So if you want an outline tonight, it's biblical. It's not alliterated. (laughs) Be sober. Be vigilant. Resist. These are how you and I are to engage in spiritual warfare. To be sober can have in its very definition the idea of abstaining from wine. However, in the reality of consideration, it means not only that, but it also has the idea of being discerning, of being watchful, if you will, of walking circumspect, of walking circumspect. To be vigilant, which is linked closely with sobriety of mind, means to keep awake to keep awake, to perform as it was a military watch. You think about the word vigilant used in a number of ways. Uh, December the 11th, December the 11th, that's a Sunday night. Uh, I was invited out to the Hershey Med Center and for all parents who had uh, lost a child, they invite out for a candlelight, what's the word? Vigil. Well, that's the concept of vigilance. You do it at night, you're going to light a candle, you're going to stay there, you're going to reflect, you're going to consider, you're going to encourage. It's a time in which you're going to observe a memory. From that comes the word vigilance, or in this particular tense, to be vigilant. It has the idea of the watchman upon the parapet of the wall, looking out over the land beyond his city. He's to have keen eye. Perhaps... One of the gravest of all times is when it is dark and he cannot see as far and he cannot see as clearly. And it's during these times where his body becomes weak and his mind can become distracted by so many things. It's during this time that it has to give great vigilance and care and concern and detail. And that's the idea of what it means 
to be vigilant. Notice his third word here in verse number nine. He says, resist. Now, I, I don't mention every Greek word, but this is one that I think you'll find a word picture in. This, this word here, resist, it's that Greek word by which the medical uh, society uh, derives and uses the word antihistamine. Antihistamine. You might would take an antihistamine if you have allergies. You're familiar with these. That's the idea of resist. Resist. It has the idea to stand against, to oppose, to resist, to withstand. Don't collude, don't compromise, and don't quit. Stand fast. Throughout Scripture, you'll find these three words used so often. Particularly sobriety or sober and vigilant as it means watch. Let me read you a number of verses. You can consider these. In fact, I'll tell you, I'll have you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And I'll, I'll share a number of verses with you. But we'll make our way over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 so you can look at these verses here as well. Hold your place or a marker in 1 Peter. But turn, if you will, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It's the shopping list of the Christian. We'll get there in just a moment. But it's used, sobriety, sober, vigilance. It's linked several times in Scripture. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 34. Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Or 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 5. But watch, vigilance if you will. Thou in all things endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist make foolproof thy ministry. In Titus chapter 2. In fact, let's turn there as well. You're in 1 Thessalonians. Turn over just to the right a little bit over to Titus chapter 2. We started here in the morning hour. It would seem appropriate we go there. But when you think of sobriety and vigilance, I just quoted to you or, or read to you 2 Timothy chapter 4. And the primary thing with 2 Timothy chapter 4 deals with the man of God. In fact, that's the theme of 1 2 Timothy and Titus. That's why we refer to it as the pastoral epistles. However, this man of God, he is to make foolproof his ministry. He's to do the work of an evangelist. I particularly would note some of the finest evangelists I ever met were pastors. There's a unique heart and blend that is present. Now, that's not to throw all of them under the bus. It's just an observation that I've made over the many years. But regarding sobriety, look at how it moves beyond just the pastoral office. Look in Titus chapter 2. Uh, there are four groups here. You're in one of these four groups right now. Everyone in this room is under one of these four groups right now. He says in verse number two, uh, the, the, the preaching here is, of course, on right, uh, right interaction, if you will, right instruction. Speak thou the things that become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, etc. Sober again, circumspect. Notice, if you will, in verse number three, the aged women, likewise, they in, 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 um, in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may be able to teach the young women to be what? Sober. Love their own husbands, love their children. By the way, as I'm studying through scriptures, the only time there's an imperative of a wife showing the love to her husband is right here in Titus chapter 2 and verse 4. 
is several times the other way around, just an interesting connotation. You could study it out and find another one, but that's, that's the study there. Look, if you will, in chapter 2, drop your eyes down to verse number 6. Young men likewise exhort to be what? Do you think that God places a premium on sobriety of mind? On the ability to consider and be circumspect? The man of God, 2 Timothy chapter 4, he's going to have to be one that's sober-minded. Why? So he can teach these things to God's people. And regardless of the group you're in, the focus, the emphasis will be the ability to have and to teach and to convey sobriety, circumspectness of life. You're there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Look, if you will, in verse number 6. Therefore, therefore, give it just a moment to get there. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5, verse number 5, you're children of light. We're children of the day, not of the night. Because of that, therefore, verse 6, let us not sleep. Amen. Let us not sleep. Do not go to sleep tonight. Amen. I heard a preacher some time ago, he said, be careful the preacher goes long. Apostle Paul's not here to do miracles, you know, if you fall out of a window. Let us not sleep. Now, he's, he's not talking there about no nocturnal rest. That's not what he's saying. The emphasis there, he's calling you to sobriety. The same is being done in Romans. The same as we just read to you a moment ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We had a message, a preaching conference about awake. Do you remember? That's the calling there. Don't sleep your life away. Awake, verse number six, as do others. Let us not sleep as do others, but let us, what's the word? Vigilance. Watch and be sober. Emphasis again, sobriety, vigilance. Notice, if you will, verse seven. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. They that be drunken are drunken in the night. But... What is he saying there? He's saying that those that be apathetic, no sobriety, they do it at night. And the spiritual allocation that he's making, the spiritual emphasis is being made there, particularly in verse number 7, is this. Those that live in the night, according to verse 7, or rather verse 5, are not believers. Believers have no concern about the things of God. Titus chapter 3, verse number 3, they are foolish, deceived, He's saying if you have no concern about the things of God and you can rest easy and proclaim Zion your home, then perhaps you have a greater problem than you think you do. Verse number eight, let us who are of the day, the moniker there being a believer, you're of light. Light occurs during the day. You're not of darkness, which is at night. This is the comparison. Who are of the day, be sober putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of what? You know, he didn't give them the full portion of Ephesians chapter 6, but he underscored a good portion of it, didn't it? Do you remember I mentioned to you at the onset that First Peter, in particularly in chapter 5, a lot of the focus has to do with the seat of the emotions, the heart and the mind. And here the emphasis on sleeping and vigilance, the directive in verse number, uh, verse number 8, the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet, a helmet of hope of salvation. Notice if you want one more verse. For God hath not appointed us into wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. 
That verse has wonderful eschatological implications. That means of things to come, and it has very present implications as well. But notice the interweaving there of sobriety and vigilance, seriousness and circumspect, watchfulness and discernment. A few other verses I'll give you in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7. The scripture records the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch into prayer. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2, continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18 we've alluded to, but there he speaks of the Christian armor and conveys the necessity of prayer in the Christian life. In 1 Peter chapter 1, wherefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I would just note how similar that passage is to what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the hope of salvation. Revelation chapter 3 and verses 2 and 3, he says, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Verse number 3, Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast. Repent, if thou therefore shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee even in the book of Revelations to the churches of those last days, particularly these seven churches, he says unto them, be watchful, be watching, hold fast. And I would note again in 1 Peter chapter 5, the emphasis that is readily given, be sober, be vigilant, resist. Sobriety or soberness is a state of being. It has at its essence the ordering and the balancing of life's important issues. Sobriety of mind deals with the discipline of the mind and body that will avoid the allurements of this world and its system of operation. That's why the comparative is awake out of sleep. Sobriety has a lot with how you consider things. Vigilance rather requires action. A vigilant Christian is one that pays attention to what is vying for the attentions and the effects of our heart. I'm reminded of Colossians chapter 4, set your affections on things above and not on things. Let me ask you this. Can Christians get called away setting their affections on things of this earth? Yes. Our adversary knows full well our proclivities. Be vigilant. The optimal word here for vigilance is to watch. So then what actions are important? If I'm a sober-minded individual, I'm going to have that discipline of mind and action. And vigilance brings with the idea I'm going to have discernment and watching. What actions should I as a sober, vigilant Christian engage in that will allow me to resist the devil? Let me give you some of them. Look over in 1 Peter chapter 5. Now, I'm not going to go through every one of these, but I want to highlight them quickly for you. You see, he, that is Peter, he's building to this point. As a Christian, I'm called to sobriety, 
I'm called to vigilance. I'm called to resisting the devil. I'm calling to hope of salvation. And there are going to be several things that I as a child of God are going to have to embrace. Let's call it several actions and attitudes which are an important part of being sober and vigilant. Notice in 1 Peter, if you will, chapter 5. And I want you to look at the first of these that are going to mention in verse number 5. Likewise, ye younger, what's the word? Submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, this reminds you of Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. All of you be what? Subject one to another. All of you be subject one to another. I would submit to you that a vigilant, sober Christian is a submissive Christian. Early Christian life, I learned a truth. And this is the challenge. I cannot think of any time that God used a rebel to accomplish his perfect will. Now, there have been times God used lost people. There's been times that God brought good out of the way evil men behaved. But I can never find a time where God blessed an evil, wicked, rebellious heart and said, this is what I desire in life. And we could take down, that wasn't the idea of Moses. When Moses rebelled against God, the judgment that God placed upon him, he'd never never go into the promised land. When David rebelled against God, it cost him a devastation of home. It cost him some ignominy and reproach upon Israel. One of the attitudes of a vigilant, sober-minded Christian is their life is arranged in the fashion that God wants them to be. They're not spiritual individualists that are more concerned with a spiritual relationship with God than following the biblically revealed truths of the Word of God. It's so interesting today, the, the, the attitude that so many have regarding church. I mean, it's interesting, uh, you'll see it in stores and everything from time to time, especially in the summer, I am the church. You see folks wear it, I am the church. It's almost a license that one can have and say, church isn't that important because I'm the church. The reality is that's bogus. It's theologically untrue. The church is the place where redeemed people gather together for the purpose of worshiping God, get this, for the purpose of ministering to one another and for the purpose of evangelizing the lost. That is the tripart focus of a local assembly and you ain't that. It takes more than one. A lot of times the reason why folks adhere to that is because they don't want to be in the order and structure that God wants them to be. The heart of a sober, vigilant Christian is submission to the authority that God has dictated in their life. And yes, I have a responsibility as well there in verse number 5. Yea, all of you be what? Subject one to another. In fact, if you want to get more real, specifically as it would come from me in verse, uh, as me as a pastor, look up, if you will, in verse number three. And speaking to the pastor, bishop, elder, he says, neither being what? Lords over God's heritage. There's an attitude of submissiveness one to another. Why? God's not in love with rebels. The first rebel of his creation was condemned eternally. And he is, in fact, the adversary we're speaking of this evening. Notice the second one, if you will. Found right there in the text in verse number 5. Not only be subject one to another, but what's our next thought? To be clothed with what? Oh, that's interesting. 
If you're a sober, vigilant, resisting Christian in spiritual warfare, there's a level of humility about you. Why? Note, if you will, in verse 5, for God... Can I... Let me show you something interesting. Take out your pointing instrument. Look in verse number 5. This is a beautiful part of you, King James, here. This is beautiful. It's simplistic, but it's worth 10,000 times $10,000. Look at verse 5. For God resisteth. Do you see the ETS? ETH? ETH? You want to circle that. King James, when something is F, it ends in F, it means it's a continual process. It's continual. Now, I want you to note something. God resisteth continual, present, always. Until humility occurs, God resists. Now, if you drop your eyes down, look in verse number 9. And speaking of you as a child of God, you are to... Where's the ETH? Did it fall off? It's not there, is it? Because it's not supposed to be there. There's an interesting concept here. If you're a proud individual, God's always against you. (laughs) He don't like your face. He don't like anything you do. He is opposed to you at every strata and layer of your life. All the time. In fact, so much so, in the book of Proverbs, he said, A proud look, I hate it. He didn't say a proud person. That said elsewhere. It said it's an abomination to him. He said, if you just got a look on your face that looks proud, I hate it. That's a marvelous consideration. The idea of resisting, it has the idea of a soldier that's going to war, a military unit that's going to war, and they are dressed to the nines with every offensive and defensive weapon at their disposal girt upon themselves. They are there to do business. That's the word God used. He said, I am so set against pride that every fiber of my being hates it to the fullest extent whereby I am able to hate something. Yes, there are things God, the God of love, justice, holiness, and goodness, absolutely despises and configures to be an abomination. And a proud look's one of those. He said, I hate it. And I'll always resist it. Now drop your eyes down in verse number 9 as you think about resisting. Whom resist steadfastly. Think about this. You're walking with God. The resistance that you're going to have to give to spiritual warfare is not a persistent, consistent force. What does that mean? You know child of God is ever always under demonic attack. Else God would have put whom resisteth steadfastly. At that point in which temptation occurs... At that point in which trials occur, at that point in which you you have that spiritual warfare, it's at that point you're to treat that evil one just like God would pride and he will flee from you. That's a marvelous consideration to behold. I'm to be submissive. I'm to be clothed in humility. I note again verse number 5. He giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourself there under the mighty hand of God that he may trust or may exalt you in due time. I'll give you a third attitude of one that is being sober, vigilant, and has the ability to resist the devil. 
Verse number seven, casting all your care upon him for he careth for you. Can I speak to this for a moment? They're not only a submissive Christian, they're not only a humble Christian, they're a trusting Christian. We do well to realize there are too many things beyond the scope of our ability to control. I can't control decisions people would make. I can't. I can't control advice that people take. I can't control counsel that people receive. I can't make them take good counsel and I can't cause them to reject bad counsel. I can't do it all. It's beyond the realm. I can't make people come to church. I have a hard enough time with me. I can't make people walk the aisles. I can't make people get saved. There are so many things beyond the scope of my ability. Yet I can pray. And I can cast all my care upon him, knowing he careth for me. What is this that I'm to cast upon him? And as I mentioned in the early service, in the morning service, that has the idea of removing from my shoulders and placing exclusively on his. There's any number of things. I could say that I need to cast all my discouragement upon him. His shoulders are good enough, broad enough, strong enough to carry it. I need to cast all my discontentedness on him. You know, I love the deals, financial shopping deals this time of year, really do. Sometimes I'll tell you, I'll wait to buy something until this time of year just to get a deal. But you know, this time of year often showcases our society's discontentment with their life. Because they just don't have enough. And sadly, I speak not just of this world, but as Christians, sometimes we're in that same boat. We're just not happy with what's fallen unto us as is our lot in life. It might be our health, it might be our wealth, it, it, it might be our height, it might be our housing, it might be our job, it might be you fill in the blanks, casting all your care upon Him. A sober, vigilant believer trusts God. That's what it does. He can cast upon Him all of the discontentment, all of the discouragement, all of the despair, all of the pain, all of the suffering, all the trials, and if I can go one step further, all of the anxieties of life. Sometimes what the child of God needs to do is go to the throne of grace and let God deal with the problems that are too great for us. It sure beats complaining. It sure beats uh, losing fellowship with other people. It sure beats so many things that are on the scope of our our comprehension. No wonder the proverb says, trust in the Lord with all thine heart. And then the following verses, it will be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. Or you can use the modern translation, have anxiety, never pray, and watch your mind go cray, cray, cray. A sober, vigilant Christian is a trusting Christian. You come to verse 8, we're back to sobriety and vigilance again. We face relentless opposition. We cannot afford to become apathetic 
or indifferent to this truth, satanic attacks will occur. They may occur directly, like Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1 through 7. They may come subtly, subtly, if you will. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where the scripture says that Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. But we must be sober, vigilant, and resist. Note here just a couple more thoughts. He says, resist steadfast in the faith. That's lovely to unpackage. That word steadfast is the root word which the medical society will get the, 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 the word, I was talking to somebody about this today, steroid. I'm to resist him with all of the strength and solid fortitude that faith will allow me to be. When we speak of faith, we can talk about a saving faith, but that's not the implication here. When he speaks of faith, he's talking about everything from the whole revelation of God's revealed truth. As in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 1, where he commands to preach and exhort with his whole faith. When he speaks of a whole faith, he's speaking of the sound doctrine of discerning saints like you would find in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 18 where he says not to be cast to and from by every wind of doctrine. Jude spoke of it on this wise. He said, I was going to write to you concerning the common salvation, but I thought it more needful that I write to you concerning the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. It's one of the reasons why pulpits today need to engage in strong doctrinal preaching. Because it is the truths of the Word of God, not fanciful poems and stories, that will ultimately give you the ability to resist steadfastly in the faith. Time will not allow me to finish the other half of my notes here this evening. If we are going to be successful in resisting the devil, we need to live godly lives. We need to know the peace and joy that only God can give. We need to adhere to the faith and truths of the Word of God. We need to rest in them. We need a mind of discernment, a consideration of truths that bring about a watchfulness and the knowledge of trust that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Whom resists steadfastly in the faith. God help us to resist the combat of evil. Let's stand for feet. Father. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541 Harrisburg, Pennsylvania 17112 and visit our website at www.svbcpa.org Until next time, 